My name is Becky Horse. One of my jobs is to coordinate our convocations that we hold here each Monday morning. As you know, each year we focus on one of the five core values, and this year that core value is compassionate peacemaking. And today you will meet two compassionate peacemakers, George Godfrey and Rich Meyer. I'd like to introduce them for you. George Godfrey is a member of the Citizen Band of the Potawatomi Indian Nation. He grew up on several reservations, Potawatomi, Sioux, Hopi, Omaha, and Winnebago. He received his undergraduate degree in South Dakota and his PhD from Cornell University. His research focused on Lepidoptera and resulted in many publications on identifying and classifying caterpillars. George was a faculty member and later dean and vice president for academic affairs at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas. <clears throat> he later assisted 31 tribal colleges and universities in developing their undergrad curricula and research programs. George is also a traditional powwow dancer. And he recently published two books about the life of a Potawatomi woman of the early 1800s. One of them historical, the other one historical fiction. And you'll hear more about that woman today, I believe. George and his wife Pat live near Athens, Illinois. Now, Rich Meyer is a Goshen College alum. He graduated with an interdisciplinary degree in math, French, and religion. He and his wife Brenda, who is one of the pastors at Benton Mennonite Church, worked for six years in Lesotho in Southern Africa with Mennonite Central Committee. And then he also worked for 12 years for Christian peacemaker teams. Rich is currently director of the Elkhart County Clubhouse. That's an organization that supports young adults with mental illness. He's also a commercial airplane pilot and a square dance caller. Rich and Brenda live near the little town of Benton, about six miles southeast of here, not far from the site where a five, the Five Metals Potawatomi Indian Village once stood. Rich and George have just returned from the sixth Trail of Death commemorative caravan that retraces the route of the Potawatomi forced removal from northern Indiana to Kansas in 1838. George, as a Potawatomi historian, was instrumental in developing these caravans over the last 25 years. Rich served as the navigator of the caravan this year, and they discovered that they share an interest in dumpster diving. In this convocation, they will tell us about George's people and also tell the story of how they became friends. They will be on campus today through the lunch hour. You're welcome to join them for lunch and conversation at the north end of West Lawn Dining Hall from noon till about 1.30. Now please join me in welcoming George Godfrey and Rich Meyer. Thank you, Becky. George, classifying Lepidoptera species, how many caterpillar mouth parts did you examine under that microscope? Probably about 2,000. Fascinating. Fascinating. Okay. It's one of those occupations that if you have insomnia, uh, it works out well. Okay. I'm going to give uh, briefly the 
uh, the bare bones history of the last years of the Potawatomi in northern Indiana. Uh, 1805, the white settler population of Indiana was about 5,000, and the Potawatomi were recognized as being the dominant tribe in the northern third of Indiana. Through a series of 22 treaties, which actually makes the Potawatomi the most treated Indian tribe in the U.S., that land holding was reduced until 1936 uh, six square miles near Plymouth, Indiana remained. The session, the treaty session by which the land where we are here was ceded was the Treaty of Cary Mission in 1828. Uh, through that 35 years from 1805 to 1840, the white population of Indiana grew from 5,000 to 300,000, uh, a rate of growth unparalleled in Indiana history, and the Potawatomi were essentially overwhelmed by that influx. The settler influx was actually a direct result of the Treaty of Greenville in 1795. At that treaty, and Five Metals was one of the signatories, the U.S. government committed to preventing white settlers from moving into Indiana. And the other result of that treaty was a cessation of hostilities. And it was the cessation of hostilities that made Indiana so inviting that the population grew by, a, the white population grew by a factor of 50 during the next 30 years. So as a result of having settled the conflict, the, the violent conflict in 1795, the territory became much more attractive to white settlement. The Potawatomi at a treaty in 1836 regarding those last six square miles, three of the four chiefs who had received that land in the penultimate treaty uh, got drunk at the treaty parley and the treaty terms included that the alcohol and tobacco at the treaty parley would be paid for out of the settlement that the Indians would receive for the land. Three of the four signed to vacate in three years, two years, by 1838. The last session then was in tune with the Indian Removal Act. Andrew Jackson had run for president uh, campaigning on the Indian Removal Act which simply stated that Indians belonged west of the Mississippi uh, and that the land should be vacated for white settlement east of the Mississippi. And he won in a landslide. So in that sense, all Americans share the responsibility for that decision. And the governor of Indiana at the time, governor, General John Tipton, was an old Indian fighter and saw this as a good opportunity and put it into, in, into force immediately. The fourth chief, Menominee, refused to sign and said, I will never leave. This is my land. Uh, he became famous in history for that refusal. He appealed to Washington that the Session Treaty that was only signed by three of the four chiefs who had been given the land couldn't be valid. All four would have to agree to give it up. Uh, this did not square with Washington's plans. 
And uh, on a morning late August 1838, a militia raised from South Bend, Logansport, and Laporte, Indiana, surrounded the tribe at worship. Now, at that point, the tribe was predominantly Catholic. Menominee himself had been a Baptist minister ordained by Isaac McCoy at Cary Mission, but when the Baptist mission closed and the Baptist missionaries left, French priests from Notre Dame came into the territory and began serving the Indian tribes in the area, and the tribe converted. Menominee became a uh, deacon, a, a catechist in the Catholic Church, and they were at worship on a Sunday morning and the tribe was surrounded by this militia. They were kept prisoners in the chapel and the militia went out and rounded up the stragglers. The folks who had slept in that Sunday morning were brought to church by the soldiers. They left two days later on this forced emigration. Three of the chiefs refused to go and so General Tipton had a cage built that was put on a hay wagon and the three chiefs were put in this jail cell on a hay wagon and taken by oxen as far as the Illinois border. At the Illinois border, they agreed to travel the rest of the way. There were some 300 horses and some 26 wagons, 800 people. The first death along the Trail of Death was uh, just south of Rochester, Indiana. A baby died near Mud Creek and the trail took about uh, 60 days. Early November, they reached Kansas, and the militia considered that their work was done, and they simply left the tribe there on the plains of Kansas and came home. The tribe uh, moved to Sugar Creek Mission, a Catholic mission about 60 miles south of where they were left in the Kansas plains, and uh, found refuge with uh, the Catholic sisters who were operating Sugar Creek Mission and that former deportations of Potawatomi had reached and taken refuge also were living at this same mission. So the tribe somewhat reassembled there at Sugar Creek Mission. I won't go into the, the following years, but uh, today the descendants of the Trail of Death are mostly members of the Prairie Band of Potawatomi, which is headquartered in Kansas, and the citizened Potawatomi Nation that is headquartered in Oklahoma. Uh, the division happened because the government offered dual citizenship, American and tribal citizenship, for any of the Indians that would move to Oklahoma because the policy changed and Kansas was no longer Indian territory. Oklahoma was now Indian territory. So with an incentive to move, uh, a chunk of the tribe moved to Oklahoma and became the citizen Potawatomi Nation. Those two tribes, uh, those two modern tribes would be the affiliation of most of the descendants of survivors of the Trail of Death. Uh, other Indians from this part of Indiana at the time of the deportation would have fled to Michigan where deportation was not being threatened because there was not a land base of the tribe which represented a block to white settlement. So the Potawatomi in Michigan were not deported and today the Pokagon Band, Gun Lake Band, Huron Band, several bands are still located in Michigan. Those would also be 
descendants of the Indians who used to live here. So that places them in a variety of Potawatomi bands today. In, 18, no, in 1988, the 150th anniversary, George Godfrey and a, a Fulton County historian, Shirley Willard, began a conversation about commemorating the 150th anniversary of the Trail of Death. Um, and they organized a caravan to travel from Plymouth, Indiana to Osawatomie, Kansas, and then Sugar Creek to retrace the route. Out of that effort, they eventually, with local historical societies, identified all of the overnight campsites from here to there, the 55 places where the uh, emigrating party spent the night. And every five years since then, a group of Potawatomi and a few uh, interested whites have followed this route, uh, retraced the route, uh, visited with people along the way. Uh, it makes the papers in the local news. And I would say a large part of the work of that caravan is simply retelling the story. George is now going to retell the story in another way uh, as a character who survived the trail of death. Keep in your mind that uh, when the Potawatomi got to Kansas, there was no housing for them. And to survive through the winter that was coming on, many of the people sought shelter in overhanging limestone uh, bluffs. And they had fires inside the little overhang, and they hung canvas from the wagons which had moved them, and also deer hides that they had uh, secured. And they hung those over to keep out the wind. And what I am doing at this point then is telling the story of a person who has come out of this limestone bluff and he's reminiscing about some of the things that happened before the removal and then during the removal. And so if you can imagine that this is a man who is disheveled and who is uh, somewhat distraught, uh, you can sort of begin to visualize the setting that took place. He was sitting on a rock and he comes out in the morning and he says, and he looks down and he's heard that this is Sugar Creek. And he says, this is Sugar Creek, huh? I should be sweet too, but I'm not. When I think back about all of the things that happened, Oh, we had a pretty good time in Kansas, better in uh, Indiana. Trees grew tall in Indiana. The trees around here in Kansas lost their spirit and don't know how to uh, grow tall. We had good crops, corn, back in Indiana. We got along pretty good with our white settlers that were starting to come in. Oh, I can remember that there was uh, these white people, the schmuckmen, the long knives, built two kinds of wigwams. A big one that they lived in a cabin. We thought they were big. They were bigger than our wigwams. Then not too far from the big 
log cabin was another little small structure, sort of stunk. It uh, reminded of Chicago, the skunk. You know, they, they named a uh, city Chicago, Chicago. And uh, one day I was, was just kind of minding my own business, and uh, I saw a little girl go into this uh, little small, small house. And a little Anishinaabe boy, a little Potawatomi boy came and he locked her in. Oh, the girl got mad. She was kicking the door and wanted to get out and get out. And we were all sort of laughing. And finally the little Anishinaabe boy let this little girl out. And I sort of heard somebody laughing behind me and I turned around and here was a little guy with a black hat long dress. And I went back and told some of my friends about this guy. And I said, I've already given him a name. I said, what's that? Little Duck. Well, Little Duck was a man that finally got our men out of the uh, cage in Danville, Illinois. There was some good things that we learned from the Schmuckman. One of the things I remember is that we learned to play cards with these funny little white pieces of paper. Some of them had double heads on them, and one of the heads was upside down. But you know, there was, there was one woman who learned to play poker so good that sometimes she'd get the white settlers mad. She ran a tavern, and she provided housing and sleeping for the people who were settling. And one day when I was in this little tavern, and she was playing poker, and the guy that she was playing with lost, and he got mad, and he threw the cards down the table, said, that's okay, you move soon anyway. No one knew what he meant by, you move soon anyway. We soon found out. We'd gone to church, and all of a sudden, people, the smoke, lots of smokemen came with guns and bayonets, and they surrounded the church and said, you don't get out until you go to Kansas. Well, most of us didn't know anything about Kansas. I had no idea what it was. Oh, it was a long walk, a long walk, all the way to Kansas. Started out hot, dusty, not too much water. Some of the people got so hungry that when they were in Indiana, they reached into a bucket and pulled out the linen or the far lard that had come from, from sheep. And so here you had this kind of greasy stuff with hair in it and the people ate it because they were so hungry. One thing that really made the trip bad, the long walk, is that so many people died End of the day, sometimes a person, a woman, would get out of a wagon with a little baby in her arms, but the baby was dead. These children were buried along the way and were not allowed any kind of real service. Also, a lot of the people got sick. People liked to walk rather than ride in the wagons. Out in uh, 
Missouri, it got real, real cold. Some people were barefoot. I don't know where they got them, but they came up with some real hard moccasins that they called shoes. And they gave them to us, passed them out. It was cold, snowy, rainy by the time we got to Missouri. Oh, there were some good things that happened to us along the way, too. One of our leaders, McCoats, died near Sydney, Illinois, and some white farmers built a coffin for him. We didn't leave, we went, did not want to leave McCoats back. He was a very elderly man, and we had a great deal of respect for McCoats. So we got to take Makos with us. There also was a, a time when we, I thought it sounded funny at least, after a while. Uh, we were in Jacksonville, Illinois, and some people came out with strange uniforms. At first I thought they were some kind of soldiers. They had funny weapons with them. Pretty soon they started blasting away, making noise. And when I first heard it, it sounded like a love silk elk. And after a while, we didn't know what they're playing, what kind of music it was, but they, they played songs for us. Next day, they gave us sandwiches, candy, but they made us walk around this funny looking square as the people watched us. A woman who had given birth to her baby near Catlin, Illinois, handed her newborn baby to one of the people that she passed by because she thought that that person would take care of her baby. She was afraid that her baby would die on this long walk. She didn't know how far it was. We don't know what happened to that baby. We never did. But the baby is left behind. I hope that she lived. When we got to central Missouri, we found some things to eat, and these were pecans. Some people knew how to eat them because they had uh, gone to Choctaw Indian Academy in Kentucky, and they knew how to crack open these nuts with their hands, you know. And so, so we all sat down, and we were cracking these pecans, you know, in our hands and eating them. And that tasted really, really good. But it was such a long, long walk that one day to the next, we did not know what was going to happen to us. One of the people that I remember very much from Indiana was Senegal. And the reason I remember Senegal is that he was, as he's being forced out of the church, he kept calling for Kabunda, Kabunda, Kabunda. He kept looking around for Kabunda. Kabunda was pregnant and was ready to give birth to her baby. And a little white boy came in and told her, go hide, go hide, go hide. She did. She went out in the woods and she had her baby. She was left in Indiana. Senegal was forced to walk with us. A couple of days ago, maybe it was two weeks ago, Senegal came and said, I'm going back to find my Kabunda. Well, I guess that uh, Senegal left because I haven't seen him for a couple weeks. He's gone. 
I don't know how he knew the way back, but he did. He said he's going. We had a little duck with us at first, but little duck, the priest, was very sick too. So finally he and Abram Burnett took off for St. Louis. I found out that little duck died. A lot of us cried. We cried today too, wondering if the woods in Indiana cry for us, because we have gone. George, do you want to say a little about uh, uh, Senegal, the end of that story? Senegal did come back. Kabunda did have her baby. But by the time Senegal got back, he was a physical and spiritual wreck, and he died an alcoholic. So there were a few Potawatomi that did come back. Uh, Shipshawano was one of them. Shipshawano was a chief from this area who was part of the deportation. And uh, at the end of the trail, he said, I'm an old man, I want to go home to die. And he came back to Shipshawana and uh, died in 1841. He was buried here in Shipshawana. Uh, my work on this agenda for me uh, took a, a big step in 1998 when there was an article in the Mennonite Historical Bulletin that sort of uh, set me off. Uh, the quote was this. It's from a 1996 article. Kuntz owned the farm for 50 years, renting it to various tenants. He had bought it from Peter Gefeller, and in 1856, Gefeller had bought it from the original owner, John B. Neuenschwander. What do you do with that? Well, I think that uh, something that was said to us just a few days ago in Island Grove, Illinois, beautiful oak grove, and we were admiring this, this huge, huge oak tree. We were told it was 400 to 500 years old. And we said to the man that came out to talk to us, said, you have a beautiful place here. And he said, I don't own it. God owns it. He said, I'm simply the caretaker. And I've also heard that when the, some of the Indians left this area, they actually had a powwow. They had a dance in honor of the new caretakers, but they asked the new caretakers to take good care of it. And I think that, that one of the things that, the, that they hoped as the new caretakers came in is that there would be friendship and sharing between the two people, not just getting rid of the people and sending them out to, out to Kansas. I wrote a response to that article to the Mennonite Historical Bulletin editor, and as I tried to figure out what should we do differently here, I came up with three questions, and I proposed that any article dealing with the beginnings of a Mennonite community should have to address three questions in the first paragraph. It should first have to tell us whose land was this before colonization, 
How did they lose it? And where are their descendants today? The first two are a matter of historical record. How did they lose it is which treaty did they sign that was the session? Whose land was this before colonization is simply part of recognizing that no, John B. Neuenschwander was not the original owner of that land in Iowa. But the third question, where are their descendants today, opens up a whole spectrum of opportunities. It reminds us that these relationships are simply neglected. They, they are not ended. The Potawatomi are still with us, not very close through some of our work of the past, but they are still around. And it is, in a certain sense, uh, a neglected relationship because we're uncomfortable with it. It's partly a neglected relationship because we don't have to deal with it if we don't want to. By we, I mean descendants of settlers. It seems to me it is an opportunity we still have, as I've learned, to take up these relationships again and to meet people like the tribal historic preservation officer at uh, Pokagon Band. Uh, I mean, when I first met him, his name is Michael Zimmerman. I didn't know Zimmerman was a Potawatomi name, but I've learned the story. A Zimmerman married a Potawatomi woman and his family rejected them. Her family accepted them, so they became Potawatomi. Um, for me, this went on then to going along on the Trail of Death Caravan in 2008. That's where I met George. And figuring out from there, what is it we can do together? Where does this relationship go? Uh, we'll find out by walking. At the end of the trail this year, uh, Governor Brownback of Kansas, formerly Senator Brownback, uh, came to the mass on Sunday at Sugar Creek Mission. And he, he, he pretty well surprised everybody there, including the tribal representatives, I think. By the way, that was just yesterday. <laughs> yeah, we drove overnight to get here. Uh, so yesterday morning, Senator Governor now, Governor Brownback came to this mass, and uh, so we go through the mass, and right before the closing hymn, he sort of interrupted. I mean, the priest had just said, and now there will be uh, the sacrament of, of heal, anointing for healing for anyone who wants. Uh, and then the governor stood up and said he had been worrying for some time about the effect of the unrepented sins of his people against the Indians. It turns out Brownback was the one who introduced the resolution to Congress for an apology to the Native Americans, and he said, I got it through Congress. I wanted it to go freestanding, but I got it through Congress by attaching it to a defense appropriations bill. I decided that's okay because that's how a lot of the treaties made it through too. Uh, he, came, he pulled out of his file a proclamation of apology to the Potawatomi and signed it on the spot and then went up and took anointing for healing. It was clearly something he had been thinking about for a long time, working on. I don't know, you know, where else does this take us? What are you working on now? Well, one thing I'm working on now is to relay my information to people, whoever or whoever they are, 
through writing, through speaking, uh, visiting, and just, you know, maybe having coffee with somebody. And, and so the, the writing has taken the form of a couple of books. One is historical, which is called Walking or Wachiki Overseer, Walking in Two Cultures, because my ancestral grandmother was really forced to walk in two cultures. And as I, I wrote that one, I began thinking, how did the, uh, or what happened in Iowa? What happened in Kansas? What happened? along the way. And so I then wrote a historical fiction, uh, Once a Grass Widow, because at one time she held a very important position. Then, then her husband threw her out. That's how she became a grass widow. She was removed not on the 1838 removal, but in 1837. And the path rich took them through the same area in Missouri that we were on and that the original 1838 removal was on. And the people got mad. They finally had a letter dictated to President Van Buren talking about some of the troubles and some of the problems and difficulties that they had. The most heart-wrenching part of the letter to me was in reference to a child who had gotten lost in Missouri and the parents were not allowed to stop and look for their child. And they said, we don't know if the child is dead or alive. We don't know if the child is in hands of enemies or friends. And, and so through uh, my writings, I have tried to portray and to relate some of this information to people who choose to, uh, to uh, listen. Mm -hmm. uh, just to, the trail of death is well known today because it was well documented by one of the soldiers on the trip. One of the soldiers from Indiana kept a journal and there is, so there is a journal entry for every day of the trip and it is from his journal entries that we are able to locate the overnight encampments. Every eastern tribe had deportations. The Potawatomi had multiple deportations. The two that are best known are the Trail of Death by the Potawatomi. It involved about 800 tribal members and about 10% died on the way. The Trail of Tears, the removal of the Cherokee, uh, involved 16,000 Cherokee and a fourth of them, 4,000, died on the way. Those are probably the two best known deportations, but nearly every eastern tribe had similar deportations, and if you're doing the research about your home territory, my article to the Mennonite Historical Bulletin laid out how you can do this research, because the editor said to me, our, our researchers wouldn't know how to find out this information. But Kepler's Indian treaties, they're all there. You can find maps that show the session of your place of living or your place of going to college, and the rest of the research is fairly simple. Uh, George and I will be staying around here to talk more afterwards if people have questions. Uh, we'll be lunch in the cafeteria, you'll show us where. Uh, we would have time for one or two questions here if, uh, if there are questions. Becky, do you want to take the mic and moderate? Does anybody have a question you'd like to ask now? <coughs> Anything you're wondering? 
I guess I have one question about the Potawatomi Nation today. There are nine different bands. Do you do anything together? Do you have a common language? What's that culture like? We have, uh, for the first time about maybe 15, 20 years ago, was a gathering of all the groups. And so the, uh, these are called gatherings. And they move from one spot to another spot each year. And yes, there is a common language. The difficulty we have is that even though the, the uh, vocal part of it is the same, there's a lot of difference in the spellings. And so in many cases, if you're reading something, you have to sound out the word and keep that in mind. And so I think this is holding us back. Only about, probably about uh, three dozen people grew up speaking Potawatomi. Mm. So we're in the process of recovering the uh, language and these elders are, are dying. And so we're trying to capture as much information as we can. But each, each group, each band has its linguist. Mm -hmm. And I was once asked to be the linguist for the citizen Potawatomi. And I thought, no, they need somebody, they need somebody who really knows the language. Mm -hmm. and, and fortunately, we have a man who went from Oklahoma up to Wisconsin and spent some time with the uh, traditional Potawatomi and was able then to begin learning the language. So he's very fluent now in Potawatomi. Okay. As I understand it, the Potawatomi settled all along the Lake Michigan watershed from Michigan down through Indiana, Illinois, and up Wisconsin. Is that right? The, the Potawatomi are very closely related to the Ojibwa and okay. to the Dawa or the uh, Ottawa. And we refer to the Delaware or Lenape as a grandfather tribe. And the oral history is that we originated as Anishinaabe people along the mouth of the St. Lawrence River and then moved upward and into Michigan and Wisconsin, uh, northern Illinois, even parts of, uh, parts of Ohio. And it was in the probably the early 1600s that the Potawatomi became distinct from the Ojibwe and from the Odawa. The last gathering of nations was in Dwajak, Michigan, uh, hosted by the Pokagon Band. The next one will be also in Michigan. The Gun Lake Band is hosting. The Dwajak Powwow, the Pokagon Powwow, the festival of the Huckleberry Harvest, is probably the simplest and quickest place for anyone here to connect with the descendants of the Potawatomi from this area. They, it's, it's, a, it's a big festival. It involves fancy dancing at three different grand entries at the powwow grounds. They've got a nice powwow grounds and a campground in Dwajak. And uh, they're very hospitable and uh, good food and vendors there with all kinds of handicrafts. I would encourage anyone who's interested to come to the next Pokagon powwow. It'll be, it's early September usually. It's always Labor Day weekend, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Rich and George.